Monday Night Virtual is going extreme! Join us this Monday, April 19th, from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time for our first ever Extreme Virtual Signing featuring the franchise Shane Douglas, Jerry Lynn, Two Cold Scorpio, Mikey Whiprack, and Simon Diamond. They'll be signing autographs and giving shout-outs live on our Facebook page while sharing some extreme stories around our Extreme Roundtable. Purchase individual photos or go for the Extreme VIP package at 80swrestlingcon.com. To another episode of 80s Wrestling the Podcast. My name is Jumpin' Jay, and I'm joined by the extreme Tommy Fierro. Tommy, how you doing, brother? <laughs> Jay, what's going on, man? How was your weekend? I had a fantastic weekend. I, I the weather here in Minnesota, incredibly unpredictable. Back on Easter, sunny and 80 degrees. This past couple of days, we had snow back on the ground. So you never know what you're getting with Mother Nature up here in Minnesota. You had a big weekend at the Wrestling Collector, Tito Santana, costume contest. Tell us, Tommy, how did your weekend go? It was awesome, man. Uh, yeah, we had a costume contest, WrestleMania costume contest at the Wrestling Collector this past weekend. And a, a little boy, nine years old, showed up as the million dollar man it was just awesome and uh he won a million dollar man signed boot and we also had tito santana there tito was signing copies of his book don't call me chico autograph pictures and john arezzi was there he was uh selling uh copies of his new book that just came out matt memories so yeah it was a really good uh event man and uh we have another big one this coming monday our next virtual signing and it's going to be an extreme virtual signing and we're going to have shane douglas jerry lynn two cold scorpio simon diamond and mikey whipwreck we're going to have them at a round table doing a extreme virtual signing this is our first signing outside of the 80s uh, I, I mentioned here in the past we have to switch it up every now and again because if we keep running as often as, as we are every other week we're going to eventually run out of 80s guys so i thought it'd be cool to do an 80s uh virtual signing with an extreme uh, catch to it so uh, as long as i've been promoting those and I, I i'm in new jersey i've never done anything with ecw and uh i've always wanted to and one of the guys i was always a huge fan of watching was shane douglas so I, right away i definitely wanted him to to headline it and not only is he headlining it on monday but we have him here on the podcast today he's on the line right now shane douglas welcome to 80s wrestling the podcast good morning guys how you doing today good shane how are you i'm fit. still alive and kicking and uh, uh sort of a gloomy day here in pittsburgh though we had a beautiful day yesterday uh sunny and gorgeous now it's sort of gloomy and pittsburgh-y looking so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm i'm in, I'm, I'm right back I'm in Jersey. It's the same here. 
Hey, Shane, before we talk about your career, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about 80s wrestling because I know that you're yeah. a big 80s wrestling fan as well growing up. Uh, you, follow oh us God, on, yeah. you follow us on Twitter, and you haven't been really active as of late, but when you were, you was always retweeting our stuff and, and, and adding your own comments to it. Growing up, Shane, who were some of your – and obviously you're probably a, a WWF fan growing up being from Pittsburgh. Who were some of your right. favorites in the 80s growing up? Well, it's it's a great, you know. For, I pre, I first started watching wrestling in 1967. I was just a couple years old, and uh, I remember it vaguely, but I, I never got to finish watching the show because I used to put a towel around my neck with a safety pin, you know, if you can imagine, and jump off the couch, and I'd always get sent to my bedroom before the end of the show. But uh, when I was 13 years old, uh, you know, many years later. We finally got cable in Pittsburgh, and that was the first time that I was able to watch the national show. Up to then, it was only the studio show called Studio Wrestling out of live out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at Channel 11 WIIC then, uh, WPXI now. And uh, you know, I was a huge fan of it, loved it. And then uh, cable came in, and it just opened up a whole new world of being able to watch the WOR feed, the live national event, uh, televised event from WWF. And a couple of years after that, uh, we were finally able to watch the NWA. Up to then, it was only something you could read about in the magazines, Harley Race and uh, Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat and Don Canoodle and Sergeant Slaughter and all, Rock and Roll Express, all of those guys. Uh, but once I was able to see those two like as a compendium, I sort of gravitated more towards the NWA because of my amateur wrestling background. So I, you know, that it looked a lot more to me what professional wrestling would look like as opposed to what at that time, early eighties, when WWF was starting to transform into the quote unquote sports entertainment company. But I was, uh, uh, huge fans of guys like uh, in, in both, in, in whether they were whichever pr- promotion they were in. I was a huge Harley Race fan once I saw him. Loved Bruno growing up. Uh, uh, Dominic Tanucci, obviously my trainer, I was a big fan of his. Uh, uh, later into the eighties, you know, I started gravitating more towards. I, I was a Rick Flair. You know, there's the, the 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 universal question from the eighties: Were you a Flair or Hogan guy? Right. I was a Flair guy because of, you know just the difference in the wrestling styles. Uh, but then you know later Steamboat and uh, uh, Jake Roberts and I mean my God, there's so many Dick Murdoch. There's so many guys Terry Funk that like when I start thinking back to that time, uh, like I always tell kids when I'm doing seminars, uh, you sit down in a dressing room back then and you look around the dressing room and literally everybody else in the dressing room is a future hall of famer, right? I mean, everybody knew their craft. And so coming into the business in the early eighties, uh, dabbling in the early eighties until 86, uh, I was, you know, uh, sitting in the dressing room with these guys in, in awe of them, you know, sort of intimidated. And, uh, you know, it was taught by Dominic to keep our mouth, uh, shut and our eyes and ears open, which is what we did. So, uh, got the opportunity to learn from some of the best in the history of our industry. Say, Shane, this is Jay. I'm Tommy's co-host, and I'm just always interested when people talk about getting into wrestling viewership at a young age, what yeah. it's like for them among their peers. You grew up in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a powerhouse right. sports in everything. They got the Steelers, the Pirates, the Penguins. So sports is a big deal in Pittsburgh. When you're going to school as, as an elementary, middle school age kid, and you're into wrestling, are your friends watching wrestling? Are they more into mainstream sports? Kind of what's the, the culture there? 
Yeah, it was, it's a great question. That they, they, you know, we they, they coined the phrase of the city of champions because of the Super Bowls and the World Series in '79, and then after that, you know, into the '80s and early '90s, the uh, the Stanley Cup. Uh, yeah, we were all watching all of it. You know, we you know we were across the board watching fo- professional football, professional baseball. I was a huge Philadelphia 76ers fan watching pro basketball. Uh, but we also at the same time about middle school, we started watching wrestling on Saturday nights, a WOR feed. And that was actually how I started getting my toe into the business was my friends and I had built a wrestling ring and uh, screwed around in it for a couple of weeks and sort of got bored and then decided that, you know, the next thing we would do is have a backyard show uh, to raise money that Dominic Danucci ended up coming to, which is how I met Dominic and we've been friends all these years. So it, it's, you know, I look back at, so it's funny you say that because that's the first question I ask whenever I interview anybody or I talk to anybody that I meet in the business, how'd you get into the business? You know, what's what, cause there's a million different ways that people get into the business and they're all fascinating to me. Absolutely. And I, I want to follow up with you finally getting into the business. Obviously, you were trained by Dominic Danucci, and Dominic had uh, obviously had ties with the WWF at the time. But you started your career in the UWF. Um, was, was there any talk originally when you first got into the business around that time frame of going to the WWF since Dominic had ties to them, or? Yeah, he, well, in fact, Dominic sent us up, sent us, uh, me and Mick and. Cody Michaels and a you know van full of us up there to do jobs uh, just to get experience with television and it was great experience to get because you know doing a television show especially on the magnitude of WWF back then uh, compared to say an independent show two very different beasts and uh, putting the door that way I ended up working oh I don't know eight ten twelve times for WWF and it's funny because you know I look back at it now and sort of chuckle at it. When they asked Chief J. Strombo asked us what name we wanted to use for the TV taping. Troy and Orndorff. I remember well, Troy Orndorff once or twice, and then uh, <laughs> it went uh, to Mike Kelly. Don't know where Mike Kelly came from, but and I remember thinking like, if I want to have a career, I don't want to be seen as being a job guy, and so that was why I used a pseudonym. Uh, you know, to me that's so pretentious because thinking back to that time. You know, people always ask, like, did you know or did you did you have any kind of inkling that you'd, you know, end up with the career that we've had, me and Mick and, you know, so many of, of us from that generation? And we couldn't. I remember Mick and I distinctly talking about it because we always worked each other on Dominic shows. And, you know, we knew we were okay for, like, independent local shows. Uh, but those guys on TV, they're great. And, like, we didn't think we could be anywhere in in, a, in the same building as them, let alone the same ring. And wasn't Randy Savage one of the guys you worked when you were up there the first time? Very first match, first show, yep. uh, first taping. And uh, he he was, you know, larger than life, obviously, right? I mean, top heel in our business and such an over-the-top character uh, that he emotes on television. But when I met him, he was such a gracious guy, Uh so easy to work with. He came to me and said, hey, kid, what kind of stuff can you do? I was literally afraid to open my mouth. And uh, he said, no, seriously, what can you do? And I so I can do drop kicks and I can do suplex and cross body. You know, I'll give him a couple ideas. Said, hey, I got it. I got it. And he walked away. We went and had the match and gave me a tiny bit in the match and then, you know, got typical macho man heat on me. And uh, we came to the back. And I expected him to go to his dressing room and ignore me. I'd done my job, right? I was paid to do my job. And uh, he came up to me, and I remember when he shook my hand, he bowed, and he thanked me. 
and he kept and he wouldn't let go of my hand, and he kept shaking my hand, saying thank you, thank you, and he said always remember, kid, if you want to have a career in this business, always thank the guy that put you over because he's the guy that's allowing you to have that career, and I never ever forgot that. Man, that is that is an incredible story, and gives kind of a an yeah. insight, to Randy Savage, that his fans don't have. Yeah, I, I'm just curious from. You're, you're new in the business. You're going to the World Wrestling Federation to have these couple matches. What is your – what are you feeling inside? What's your self-talk? You're walking into the building. These guys are large in life. What is going through your head when you're first stepping yeah. into that kind of locker room? Incredibly intimidating, uh, not because of anything any of the guys did, just because of the characters that you, you remember from television. Uh, most of the guys were very gracious and accepting. There were a couple that, you know, I can't think off the top of my head of any names, but there were a couple that sort of stayed off to their side. You know, it's quite possible they were thinking about what they had to do that night or whatever. But uh, most of the guys were very uh, welcoming and comforting in the dressing room and, and accepting. Uh, but as a kid, you know, especially the first time you walked that curtain, I'd been in front of, you know, crowds of a couple thousand at that time, which is what Independence used to draw. And, you know, you walk out there and you've got 16, 17, 18,000 people, you know, and, and they're, those people weren't very accepting. If you walk to the ring and they'd be yelling, you're going to get your ass kicked, you suck, <laughs> and all that, you know. you know. So it was a very intimidating thing. But it's, again, something you had to learn, you know, it, it, to, to, you know, you got to learn to crawl before you can walk and walk before you can run. And, I, you know, I'm glad we did that and got that experience. So is there is there anybody – in management that approaches you after the match and tells you whether you did a good job or, or they'd like to see you back, or is it just kind of, you come in, you do your job, you leave the building. Uh, pretty, pretty like, you know, punch the time, pretty much like punching the time clock. Um, Strong bow would come back and, and point out some of the things you've done wrong. Uh, Lonza, I can't remember if Lonza was there at the time, but I remember Lonza, regardless of what time I was there, would come back and he was a lot more open and, you know, easier to talk to. I think just more like personality differences and traits. Uh, but they, you know, th those guys keep in mind, they've got, I think they were doing four hour tapings, you know, four shows tapings back then at, at per night. So those guys have a gazillion things on their mind. They don't really have time to come and say, Hey, you did a good job. You say, no, if you screwed up, you probably, you know, you got a pretty good ear chewing. But, uh, you know, for the most part, they were on to the next thing because the next match is in the ring, and they've got to focus on that. Uh, but, you know, it, it was uh, intimidating, but also a great experience to get. Absolutely. You would go to the UWF at that point and then work your way to World Championship Wrestling in 1989 with uh, Johnny Ace as the Dynamic Dudes. I want to fast yeah. forward to your return now to WWF because we were just talking about you there in 1986 just doing some TV matches. Now you're hired in 1991. Obviously you have much more experience going back there this time. What was, yep. what was your, your, your thought process going into the WWF in 1990? Obviously you just had a little run in WCW, much more experience and they debuted you, you know, pretty good. You were coming in, you, you know, picking up wins there and there. What, what was yep. your thought process now going back? You have some seasoning behind you. And now you finally got signed full time to the WWF. It, it, I was very excited, uh, but it's, it's key to point out here. I had stayed in contact with Pat Patterson 
uh, because of Dominic's connection to Pat and, and, and his position in the company. I would call him for advice, you know, you know, not every day or week, but, you know, a couple times a month just to say, hey, that kind of thing. And when I left WW, or WCW, uh, I, there was no offer of a job. Okay? They hadn't said, hey, leave and we'll hire you. Uh, I, I had just grown so tired of the politics in WCW that I couldn't stomach it anymore. I, I, you know, I wanted to strangle somebody every night. And so when I left, I called him and he said, well, we have nothing open right now, but we'll certainly bring you in. There was no offer of a position. It was, hey, we'll give you an opportunity. And I had gone in, so I, I had no expectation. You know, it was just going in and working. And, uh, you know, it, the, the funny thing is, comparing my 90 and uh, 95 trips up to WWF, uh, was that I made a lot more money in 90 than I did in 95. I mean, exponentially more. Uh, but I was also working with guys Many of them I had known from UWF or WCW and NWA. Uh, I rem- the, the one guy I really want to put over here, there were, well, there were two. Uh, Playboy Buddy uh, Rose was the first that really worked hard to get me over and get himself over in the, in the matches. But Haku was another because he was seen as a killer at the time in the business, right? And uh, we were working. I remember the first time I worked him, I used to do the cross body block off the, top, the blind cross body block, and I – you know, he shoots me in, and I hit the top turnbuckle, and I do the turnaround. And when I turn around, he's all the way on the other side of the ring. I'm no Rob Van Dam. I can't hit you all the way over there, right? <laughs> and I, it, it, it can slow motion in my head. I'm coming off, and I'm thinking, I'm going to fall flat on my face. I see him, and he, all of a sudden, he puts this, like, ah, like mean-ass look on his face, and his hand's chopping the air, like open-handed, like running straight at me and jumps into me and hits me, and we end up going like a couple feet higher into the air. And it was like getting hit by a car. And But the crowd went crazy. And, you know, I, he taught me so much in working with the ring, in the ring with him. Uh, you know, and I, I always forget to mention him because, you know, I sort of jumped from that, like, to, to the you know bigger years in my career. But I had, for me, it was a stress-free time in the business. I was having a shitload of fun on the, uh, on the road. Um, and had some great people to work with. So I, you know, I think because of the lack of expectation, I didn't go into being put into a spot or whatever. That it just, I it just whatever came by. If you're doing a job tonight, no problem. Getting over tonight, no problem. Just having fun, being on the road, and working for the WWF. Shane, it seemed like in that first run or in the '90s run, they were giving you kind of a little bit of a push there. You were undefeated your first month. You. Uh, yep. teamed with Marty Jannetty off and on. You had a great showing in the 91 Royal Rumble. It seemed like they were getting yep. behind you. Did they talk to you at that time? Did they have plans for you uh, to either go on yeah. and, and have a nice singles run, be a tag team? What was kind of the idea at that time? Yes. Yeah. They, I think it was like the old school way of doing it, right? They brought this young kid in that was sort of known and, you know, slowly pushing up the card. Uh, the idea that they had at that time was to, uh, if you remember, Vince was dabbling in bodybuilding and movies and other mm-hmm. things. Uh, he wanted to see if he could create a legitimate rock star. And I had played bass and wrote music when I was younger and could sing. And uh, he he wanted to create, like, the way he pitched it to me was a John Bon Jovi character. And later, uh, I had used the outfit, I think in WCW, I lost track of time, but there was a denim outfit that I had that had uh, conchos and uh, white uh, little, like, uh, stringlets hanging off of it. 
open back. That was going to be the outfit that I would go on the road with. And uh, Jimmy Hart had written three songs. I remember two of them. One was called American Girls. The other was called Rockin' Down the Halls. And there was a third one. And when they came to, we, we were in Pittsburgh during that time. And I got to the building early and Jimmy Hart had, you know, written these three songs and had a little boom box and played them. He had three versions of each one, a pop version, a rock version, and a heavy metal version. And he, you know, wanted to hear my voice juxtaposed with what he had played to see which one fit best. And we had settled on the middle range that, you know, that the rock version would be best. And uh, it wasn't long after that. And I would have gone through that and, and, and carried that character out, except that my dad, I uh, had gotten very sick over the winter of 1991 with uh, COPD and couldn't live alone. He had to have somebody else who's on oxygen. So mm-hmm. uh, I left the road. And I remember it was in Niagara Falls. Vince, I took Vince, and I'm scared to death, right? He, they're starting to give me this push and have this plan. And I've got to go to Vince and say, hey, i got to leave the road. And Vince was incredibly gracious. Uh, we sat for, it seemed like an hour, and talked. And... He listened to what I had to say, and afterwards he said, family comes first. You've been a great employee. The door's open anytime you want to come back. And, mm. uh, you know, and so, like, that first run-up there was was completely positive. I had, which subsequently led to the 95 return, which I, I, I thought I'm walking back into that same company. And, you know, little had a little, little twist off course from that. Yeah, I want to. I want to I want to talk about that because obviously you would you would go on to ECW when they first opened up and uh, and then you would return to the WWF in 1995. Now obviously we'll we'll rewind and go back to ECW, but I want to I want to bring this up because at, at this time now you have some steam behind you in 1995. Yeah. However, I, I think you really really hit your stride after you went back to ECW. I think like I I can't see the 1997 Shane Douglas. I can't see them doing Dean Douglas with the 1997 Shane Douglas. So my question for you is, do you think if WWF would have grabbed you a couple of years later, when you, in my opinion, when you really hit your stride, you think that they still would have had that character for you? Or you think that they would have to have done something different at that point because you were so established as a franchise? If we hadn't done it in 95, I think it's quite possible that they would have come up with something similar. Uh, the, the way they came up with that character is, you know, when you hear this, this, you know, this vaunted WWE creative, right? And you expect to see like there's a, you know, like in my head, I saw like a floor of pe- you know, thinkers and people, you know, creating stuff. And I, I, instead, I walked into a boardroom. There were four or five, six people sitting around the table. They had my resume, my shoot resume, uh, which of course had teaching in my background. And uh, they sat there. They had me take my shirt off and slowly turning the circle as they're sitting there. And and I I remember like it was yesterday because they were all looking like they were pondering the secrets of the universe, you know, like what can we do with this guy? And then somebody said, we're make him a teacher, make him a professor. And they kept building up to that. And then it suddenly went off course into cartoon land, right? Where we're going to make him the world's smartest man. And he's going to have seven PhDs. And, you know, it, it just kept getting wackier and wackier. But I was willing to go along because the way that Vince had pinched, pitched me the character was that he was noticing on TV, it was driving him crazy. Everybody was making little mistakes. We all do every night. Uh, like I tell my son as a guitarist, you know, Eric Clapton makes mistakes, greatest guitarist in the world, right? But he makes mistakes every night. He's just so good. He can smoothly meld it into what he's playing and you don't even notice he messed up. Uh, 
So uh, Vince was seeing this with his his stars. You know, uh, I remember him pointing out to me that Bret Hart would only grapevine the leg if it was the one, two, three. Every false finish, was just, he would never touch the leg. Little tiny things like that that wouldn't be noticed to most fans, but to a trained eye, you'd see it. And he wanted me to point those things out, make light of it, so that they would start to think, hey, he's right. I need to start grapevining the leg on all my falsies. And uh, when that, it was pitched that way, and he also told me that I, when I said back, you know, the, to me, the character had to be legitimate grading, A, B, C, D, F. And uh, A, everybody, it's universal. Anybody that's ever been in a school knows what A, B, C, D, F is and the different levels of, of what each of those grades means. And yet when we got there, like I said, with the creative, they started getting more and more outlandish with this character. Then I see the outfit that looked like a cartoon clown outfit. And then the grades started being TT for terrible twosome and, you know, all these other, you know, silly grading systems that, you know, just made it sort of a lampoon to me as opposed to being legitimate. Did you, at, at first, did you embrace the character, though? Did you think that it had somewhere to go before they started making it really cartoonish? Yeah, yeah that's it. or I wouldn't have signed. Uh, yeah. It took me six trips up uh, to sign, and I, in retrospect, I think it was because I was just, hey, I didn't want to leave ECW. Uh, that was my home. I loved it there. I had fun there. I respected all the men and women there. I loved the fans there as much as they loved to hate me. Uh, you know, so I, I, there was no reason for me to leave, and I was making darn good money. Uh, so when Vince pinched, pitched it to me that way, I could clearly see that character. I saw the character, though, as pitched to me by Vince as somebody that wore, you know, black, you know, very, very traditional, like a college professor would be, and, you know, sticking to those, those legitimate grades that everybody's familiar with. Uh, there was one particular day up there. We were, I would fly. If you remember for the first couple months, I was just doing vignettes and uh, I would fly up on Sundays and we would film, I don't know, four, five, six, seven, eight of these things. And Vince was adamant that the character speak in that monotone, which I consider boring uh, voice. And on this particular day, we had done like six or seven of these. And on the last one, I was so bored out of my skull, I just wanted to, you know, entertain myself a bit. And I said, Vince, can I do that last one again? I'll use the same verbiage, give the same grade. I just want to give a different delivery. He said, sure, give it a try. So I did it again, but I did it as the franchise. Uh, same verbiage, same grade, uh, laughing when I would scratch the board, pounding my fist on the podium, and lots of inflection. Right as I got done, he got called out of the, out of the room on a phone call. So I had gone around the room. I remember Michael Hayes was in the room. Stan Lane was in the room. Jim uh, Ross was in the room. And literally a dozen other hair, makeup, lighting techs, uh, cameramen, sound techs. And uh, I pulled through. I went to Michael Hayes first. And Michael Hayes' exact words were, I don't know about anybody else, that last one was fucking hot. And I knew, it felt, I knew the difference of a good promo to a bad promo. Sure. And everybody in that room said the same thing as I went around the room. Fifteen minutes later, Vince comes back in the room. I can still see him, glasses down on the tip of his nose, a cup of coffee, leans against the table. And I said, what would you think, Vince? He said, well, I appreciate what you were trying to do, but, and he looked around the room and made eye contact with everybody in the room. He said, I think I like my way better. What's everybody else think? And every person who had five, ten minutes before told me my way was better, 
said, yeah, that's what we said. That's what we told him, Vince. We liked your way better, too. And it was at that moment I knew I had to get out of there. Place is bizarro world to me. Yeah, that's an interesting I, story. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I really, I really wish that the franchise character would have been in the WWF during like the real boom period, like ninety eight, ninety nine, during the the Attitude Era. Uh, this was a little before the business really caught on fire when you were there. Do you think though, yeah. if, if you, you said it would probably be a similar character if it was during that time frame? But have you ever like envisioned in your head like if you were there during like that ninety nine boom period, like when Stone Cold and The Rock and all these guys were real hot, and you came in as the franchise, it would have been a different story. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, when I went there in ninety five, I tried like hell to get Vince to take to, to take the franchise character. Um, a, it was comfortable to me. I knew it. I understood it, and I wanted to see what their with their magic they could do with it. And I even offered to sign the trademarks over to him for the duration of the contract, and he refused, thank God. Uh, but I could not understand. I think it was just maybe the time frame, you know, because later you had Rob Van Dam going in as Rob Van Dam, and other guys, Sandman, you know, different guys were going in close to the characters that they were or, or very similar. Uh, but for some reason, and I think that was just preceding all that, you know, like Taz went in as Taz. Uh, but that was after, and I think that, you know, Vince at that time had this sort of thought that it was created somewhere else, so we can't bring it here. Uh, but I think, that, you know, had they done that, you know, I think it would have been a lot more seamless uh, because for me, I was trying to play off of what the fans knew me as and yet trying to create a new character on top of that that didn't use inflection or fiery rhetoric, uh, you know, and it was sort of like, straddling a fence, trying to figure out how to be that, but doing it this way. And I think it created some end problems in, in, in launching the character, not, you know, and, and without putting any of the pressure on the, the politics that were being played at the time. You know, the way you described what that character was intended to be, the way that Vince pitched it to you, I could totally see that kind of a Dean Douglas getting over, getting lots of heat, not only with the fans, but the thing that pops in my head, if you're critiquing a Bret Hart or a Shawn Michaels, were you, right. did you have any concern that you might have legitimate heat with some of the boys in the back if you're telling Bret Hart to, to you know, grapevine the leg on a pin? No, because, again, we're all they're playing characters, right? And so if somebody comes in and says, Shane Douglas, I think you suck, or franchise, I think you suck, I don't take that personally, you know, you're, we're, we're, we're doing it to draw money, uh, you know, but I, I obviously went in sort of naive in that point because I think a lot of the guys did take it offensively. Like how dare him critique me? Uh, it wasn't me critiquing. First of all, those grades came right from Vince. Uh, mm. That was a thing that changed once I got in there. Uh, you know, first of all, he told me when we initially pitched it that he would send me the, the matches that he wanted me to critique and I was going to be able to pick out the things that I wanted to point out. And uh, that changed. So I would give, I'd be given a spot. I want you to critique this spot and give it this grade. So, uh, you know, if, if they were going to be upset, they should be upset with Vince because he pointed those things out that he wanted graded. Well, your time there in that 95-96 run was short-lived, and then you go back to ECW. And this is where Tommy yeah. pointed out you really hit your stride and you really take uh, your in-ring performance, your promos to the next level. 
what what did it feel like on a personal level to be back at ECW? Uh, if you ever seen Wizard of Oz, you know there's no place <laughs> like home. Uh, it, it was you know like a hand fitting into a glove going back. But I, but I also went back with a belly full of of, of vitriol. You know I, I was very pissed off at the way I was treated, the way I was paid, uh, the way I was lied to. And so for me, it was to go back and to take all the, you know, take every sort of coalesce like to, like to a late, like a light being, you know, lens down into a laser. I was taking all that experience and I knew that we had to take that to get this character back over a, because I'd left ECW sort of seemingly to the fans in ECW. If I had been disloyal to ECW and Paul did the right thing when I came back, he, he, he didn't just put me right into the world title contention. Uh, he did put me in a match with Raven at the time and Raven went over, which was smart. Uh, you know, so he brought, it brought me back into the fold, not just giving my old spot back. He made me work for it. When I first got back there though, I walk into the ECW arena uh, that first weekend, we were in Lost Battalion Hall the first night and then the second night in the arena. And, uh, you know, I walk into these buildings and I'm, I don't know half these people. They weren't there whenever I left. And, you know, whenever I left ECW, ECW had changed because ECW was that straightforward old school wrestling promotion, albeit a violent one. And now here we have, you know, a white guy and a black guy calling themselves brothers with, you know, crazy tie-dyed outfits and silly-looking glasses on and all these types of things that had changed. And I was going, what the hell has happened here? Like, we're, 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 we're sports entertainment. Then I watched that night and I saw those guys work, and I went, okay, I get it. <laughs> these guys are great. And, you know, it, it was just the, the ECW getting up off its knees from crawling and beginning to walk before it could run. Uh, it was a fantastic return. And just like, for me, it felt like I was going back home. I was, you know, with family again and ready to go. I think, I think that you leaving WWF the way you did in 90, 95, 96 and returning to ECW, like I said earlier, I think you really hit your stride during that like 97, 98 run. Do you and I'm sure that you went back to ECW saying I'm going to show these motherfuckers what they missed out on because yeah. you really you really turned the, the the switch up a million percent. Do you think that helped your character uh, trans? Because you yeah. were a different franchise during that time than you were in '94. Do you think that helped oh, yeah. you become the character that everyone remembers you as? Uh, absolutely. Again, that, that belly full of vitriol that you know, I, 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 and there was a big part of it too. Look what you had, you dumb fucks, and you could have. You know, what you could have done with that, the attitude error and the rest of it. So there was a lot of that. But I also had some incredible talent in ECW that was largely unknown. So it wasn't like we had to take, say, Pitbull number two and get him ready for some kind of a run. He was ready. He just needed somebody in the ring that had the experience that I had that could calm him down and put him into that direction. Uh, and I review, you know, for me, from like a performance standpoint, at that time back in ECW, I was very relaxed in the ring. Uh, prior to that, and even in WWE, I would get butterflies uh, and a bit nervous before a match. Not nervous of being in front of the fans, nervous wanting to put on a good performance. When I went back in 97, not in a smug way, but I was totally relaxed because I knew that if something screws up in the ring, I can fix it. Uh, I can get that back on course. And so I was com completely at ease. Like when I would work with guys like Pitbull, 
And I remember catching it myself one time. He was pressing me over his head, and as he's throwing me, I'm upside down taking my bump, and I yelled to him, beat your chest. And that's when I thought, boy, you know, you, you really are in a groove here, you know, and it felt comfortable. But I completely trusted the talent, too. Like, it, what I, I didn't fear that he was going to hurt me in the ring uh, or do something stupid in the ring and dump me on my head or whatever. Uh, you know, so it, it – it was, you know, at that point in my career, I should have been there, right? I was at that point, 12, 13 years, 14 years in the business, had been working on top, had experience with Steamboat prior to that, and then been to WCW, UWF, NWA, and now WWF uh, twice. I had had all that experience, so it, it all came together for me, and physically, I was in the peak shape of my career. So... Like you said, you at this point you're you have a, over a decade long career already behind you. You've been to a lot of different companies, worked with a lot of main event superstars. You're back at ECW. You're on top of your game, peak physical shape. What is it like with younger wrestlers coming in? Are they coming to you, kind of like that seasoned veteran? Are they asking for advice? Are they are they listening to instructions? Are you kind of a locker room leader at this point? Yeah, but there were a lot of them, man, you know, because Taz was running the school. Taz and Perry Saturn were running the school. So the guys that had come from their school, you know, would sort of gravitate towards them. Uh, but there was, you know, and I try to explain this. I don't know if I do, a, you know, a, a, a good enough job in doing it. ECW, when you walked into that dressing room, like unlike when I was a kid walking into that WWF locker room in 1986, rather, uh, the intimidation factor. I mean, I'm sure some of those kids walking in there were a bit intimidated. There's Taz, there's Sandman, there's Sabu, there's Terry Funk. Uh, but they're, all of those guys were very open uh, to working with people. In fact, that's how Francine and I got put together. The first night that I was back, I did not work in Lost Battalion Hall. And I saw Francine working with the Pitbulls, and they were doing promos after the show. And she was so nervous on camera. Uh, she was literally shaking. <clears throat> and so I pulled her aside. And, you know, I'd been talking to all of the dressing room before that. I pulled her aside and I said, this relate. It's just us in the dressing room. We're having fun here. Don't worry about it. Just have fun with it. Well, later Paul told me he saw me doing that. And that's where he crafted the idea of putting me and Francine together later. Because, you know, she took the advice that I gave her and, and you know, calmed down on camera. Uh, but it, that's how it was in ECW. You know, Terry Funk would watch somebody's match and walk over and say, hey, Mikey Whitbrook, let me talk to you for a second and, you know, pull him aside. There was just this sort of uh, machinery that sort of be, cropped up in, in ECW in the backstage area where we were all helping each other. For me, it, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, like the old school thing of, hey, let me use this as a weapon because if I teach any of these younger kids my tricks, they can take my spot. There was none of that. Uh, it was if, if the, the kid going out in the first match or the match before mine, if he goes out and shits the bed, then that's going to hurt the show, which is going to hurt ECW, which is going to hurt us all. So we all were pushing and pulling to help each other. And it was the only promotion that I ever worked for that where, you know, I remember sitting vividly, like it was yesterday, sitting in the back, they had a, a table set up with a monitor on it. When I watched Sabu do the triple jump moonsault the first time, and I, I was a 10-year-old kid again. I jumped out of mm. my seat and, and exploded. It was insane uh, how exciting it was. I'd never seen anything like that. And, uh, you know, it was like at that moment, point in time, you couldn't say, okay, ECW is going to make it. 
it, it, the problem was for ECW, we had no idea. We had no way of gauging how we knew we had an incredibly loyal audience, but we thought it was a very finite audience. Yeah, we got Philadelphia and we got New York and we've got the Eastern, you know, that, that New York corridor and we've got coming up Pittsburgh and Buffalo. But we didn't think that anybody in Cleveland knew who the hell we were. We didn't realize how pervasive the, uh, the tape trading had been and how this legend of ECW was slowly seeping out, not just across the country, but around the world. You're absolutely right. I, I'm from Minnesota, and while I didn't actively get to see ECW on my TV screen, I would hear about it, and you would see yep. tapes or you would see clips. Now, when you talk about the environment being so different at ECW, and as fans, that's what we hear from everyone, that it just felt different, it was different. Yeah. And a lot of people would say the culture of a place comes from the top down. What was it yep. like, Paul Heyman and, and the people that helped orchestrate the company and the matches? What was their relationship like with the wrestlers compared to a WCW or a WWF? Uh, for me, you know, being in one of the top spots, Paul, and it was sort of nerve-wracking to me at first because I was so used to getting a finish, you know, a couple hours before and being able to sit. I'm one of those guys, unlike Candido, who could wake up out of a coma and go to the ring and have a five-star match. I had to really think it through and run it through my head and come up with ideas. And I would be waiting for a finish, and Paul would say, I'll get back to you. And he'd go talk to somebody and you know, here, my, my match is coming up closer and closer, and I'd be biting my nails. And I finally got to the point where I thought, screw it. I know he wants me over or he wants me down. I know how to get there. And uh, he, the, I remember he would come to me and say, okay, I got it. I said, I've already got it, Paul, and walk away. If you did that in WCW, UWF with Bill Watts, for God's sakes, or WWF later, you'd catch hell. Uh, and because of that lack of micromanagement – for, for me as an artist, that allowed me so much more creative leeway that I could take it this way, take it that way, do this or that. And some of it worked, some of it didn't. And, and But that ultimately made you a better performer because you learned what didn't work. So you're going to jettison that and go on. Uh, Todd, by the same token, completely hands off. You know, he would come and talk, you know, sort of like sitting around and bullshit in the dressing room. It wasn't like the boss is coming to give you a directive. He'd just be sitting around bullshitting, and he'd throw an idea out or something, and then you would take that and sort of mold it and, and do whatever. As far as management goes, I think that ECW was the most liberating place I'd ever worked. Now, the, the naysayer to that the naysayer to that would say, well, yeah, but if you don't tell these kids what to do and you don't this and don't that and don't give them pure direction and write their promo for them, they won't know what to say or do. I completely disagree. Uh, for me, voicing out the character – you know, Paul never came to me or Todd never came to me and said, okay, I want you to say this, this, and this tonight. The first night that I did a promo in ECW, I had a five-minute segment, and I had never done a five-minute promo, and, you know, Flair was that five-minute guy, and he was the best promo guy in our business. And I'm at the curtain. I'm really pissing my pants. You know, like, what am I going to say? And I said, Paul, what do you want me to say? He looked at me, like, real casually. He said, whatever you want. And I said, well, shit, okay. And, you know, so you go out there and take it and you have that leeway. He trusted us. He, you know, it's like I always say, if I'm, if I'm the, the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers and I draft away, say, for a, uh, uh, a, 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 a Tom Brady, 
right? I'm not going to come in and say, okay, Tom Brady, I want you to become a cog in our machine. I'm going to mold my machine to what Tom Brady has, or I won't trade for him. You know, I'll trade for somebody else. I want a scrambling quarterback or whatever else. Uh, so if you're bringing Shane Douglas into your company, why bring Shane Douglas into your company and say, okay, now I want you to speak in, in, in a monotone voice, no mm-hmm. inflection, and be boring as hell. If you want somebody to do that, there's plenty of other people that can do that. That's not my style. Uh, and, you know, and Paul and Todd were brilliant at that and staying out of the way. They trusted us. Not that everything worked. You know, in hindsight, the ECW legend so, sort of grows with, with as the time goes on. There were plenty of bad nights in ECW. I remember them. I was there. But because the quality far superseded those shit nights, that's what sort of becomes the, you know, the remaining echo of ECW. Shane, now when you first started with ECW, it was still an independent group at that time. Did you think that, I mean, it wound up, you wanted to get your own action figures, you had your own magazine, pay-per-view, <laughs> national TV. Were, were you, did you, going into it, did you think that it would blow up as big as it did? Well, I'd love to be able to sit here today and say, yeah, I knew, kid, all from the very beginning it was going to be great. I remember the first time we flew in, uh, we got picked up at the airport. Terry Funk and I were not on the same flight, but we flew in at the same time. And driving back to the hotel, he was sitting behind me in the van. And he tapped me on the shoulder. Terry always called me Shano. He said, well, Shano, how long do you think we'll ride this train before it runs off the tracks? And we chuckled about it and figured like two or three months and we'll be working somewhere else. Uh, no, none of us had any inkling, including Terry. Wow. So you, but it you, really was magic. It, it really was magic in a bottle, you know, sure. on paper in, in 1993-94. If you put on paper a guy named Jim Fullington and a, a guy named calls himself Sabu and a guy coming Mikey Whipwreck and a Tommy Laughlin and you know, Pete Sinertia on paper, based on what they had done previous in the business, you'd think, "Ooh, we're gonna we're gonna get killed here." And the the one ingredient, the X factor, that nobody could sort of quantify, including us at the time, was, you know, you had, like, say, uh, Scotty Levy, right, Raven. So you had him going out and sort of, in a way, doing the same thing that Shane Douglas had been doing, you know, getting, you know, this Johnny Polo character and doing this and doing that and all, you know, stuff that wasn't us. And suddenly he can come here now, he can create this character called Raven and get it masterfully. And here comes Shane Douglas, you know, and Paul gave me the idea for the franchise, and now, boom, here he hopefully did it masterfully. Pete Sinertia was that Tasmaniac gimmick and came out of that and created the character he wanted. And so we had this incredibly talented dressing room. If you look down that roster of names that through that seven, eight-year run for ECW, and look at that roster of names. It's some of the biggest names in the business today, right? The, the Dudleys and Sabu and Terry Funk and Tommy Dreamer and Sandman and Sabu. Uh, you know, if we had known going in what we had, we probably could have had an IPO and made billions. Sure, sure. Uh, with, with that being said, are, are you surprised uh, how ECW ended and how, how early it ended in, in early uh, 2000s? Uh, yes and no. We again remember back in the in the time frame we were constantly being cherry picked by the big two companies, and it made sense, right? This hot territory. Neither of them knew what to do with these guys. You know, look when Sabu or Sandman went to WCW or, or the Public Enemy had no clue of how to use those guys. 
uh, you know, when New Jack went to the WCW or I went to WCW or back to WWF, they, they had no clue of how to package us based off of the things that we had done in ECW. Uh, but that said, the reason I am sort of surprised that it was I saw Paul as the most creative booker that I'd ever worked for. And that's saying something considering Dusty and Vince and Pat Patterson and uh, uh, Bill Watts and all these other guys, Eddie Gilbert. Uh, Paul had a real way of coming up with brilliant storylines and putting just enough into it and then not micromanaging, like I said earlier, uh, that it allowed this creativity flow to go through that dressing room. And then we were all helping each other. There was never a time that I went to the ring that somebody was half-assing it with me or I was half-assing it with them. Uh, You know, we only knew one speed. And I always tell people, the one thing that always impressed me in ECW was I never saw anybody being lazy. Nobody ever went to the ring and said, well, you know, know, the first time we came to Pittsburgh, we had that huge building. And we did it about, I don't know, a quarter full, maybe a little bit less. And nobody went out there and said, hey, it's Easter Sunday. It's only a quarter full. Let's take it easy. Everybody went out and did what we did in ECW. And next time it was double that. And it kept growing. Uh, That was ECW. That was, you know, in a microcosm, that's how ECW became that little engine that could. Shane, before we we wrap up, I just have one more question I'd love to ask you. In your career, you have won a lot of championships. You were a five-time world champ, ECW champ. You had that uh, really memorable promo as the NWA champ. You won the WWF Intercontinental Championship, numerous championships across independents. Is there any title on a personal level, like a shoot level, that means the most to you? Yeah. The, the, uh, when we elevated the ECW title from being a regional title to a world title, uh, not because that, you know, I'm world champion. Uh, it was because we did it without a billion dollar corporation behind us or some huge television network. We took this little company in, in a bingo hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and turned it into something that 25 years later, we're still, you know, 30 years later, almost, we're still talking about, uh, the fans are still talking about it, uh, you know, we're working on launching a site where we have, you know, collectively the, the, the ECW family there because there's so much online chatter about ECW. And I, you know, people always ask me, what, what is it about ECW? That, why are we still talking about this company that went out of business all those years ago, 20 year plus years ago? And I think the reason is, and, and I don't mean this to be any comparison to current product, uh, it, just the industry as a whole has gone so far from what it was. We were a reaction to sports entertainment in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Leading into that, you know, know, if you remember back in that time frame, Shane Douglas became the world's smartest man, seven PhDs. And uh, uh, this guy came in and became a dead man, come back to life. And this one became a goon. And this one became a garbage man. And it, it was like so cartoonish that fans our age, would tune out. I've been watching wrestling since I was a tiny kid. I, I can watch great professional wrestling 24 hours a day. I love it. And I, I, I'm always entertained by it when it's done properly. And in 93, when ECW launched, the industry as a whole had gone so far to cartoon land 
that we couldn't just pull it back and be like what Bruno's generation was doing. I tried to explain this to Bruno before he died, and he never quite understood it, uh, that we couldn't just come back and do that because that was we had to give them something completely different. We had to bring the fans back. And if you remember those early promos the franchise would do, you know, I would say that the marquee outside says wrestling. When last time I checked in, in Webster's, Webster's defines that as a sport. And I would say things like, we're a shoot, GD, we're a shoot. Uh, and the fans weren't quite sure, and those television networks in those early days were afraid to put us on TV because they thought it was a human cockfight, much like the, the problems the uh, early UW, or UFC had. So we had to sort of bring it back and launch it as that, pull it backwards, somewhat back to where the industry was, albeit with all the bells, buzzers, and whistles that we did, you know, the fighting out of the ring and, you know, the blood and guts, like, like uh, Vince McMahon said to me one time. We had to do those things because if we just came back with, you know, wrist locks and, and arm bars, the fans would have eh, ho-hum, I'm out. But instead, we came back and brought the fans back in a way that was so exciting that there was that question mark, okay, is it a work or is it a shoot? What are these guys doing? My God, they're, they're being so violent and physical that uh, I remember Dominic telling me that his neighbor came over, an older guy came over and said, hey, have you seen your student on this new company called EC? Like, they're killing themselves. And, you know, in reality, we were doing the same thing everybody else was doing. We were working. And, but it worked. We had to do that to get the fans back to, to, you know, to the TV set or to the arena. And by doing it that way, I think in hindsight, now that we can look back to 20 years since it's been out of business, in that intervening time, how many promises have we been made that, uh, you know, here comes TNA, it's going to be the next big thing, and then it doesn't. And here's Ring of Honor, and it quite doesn't get over that hump. And here's T, uh, NXT, and here's AEW. And all these things, you know, giving and bringing some level of fans to the table, but not, you know, what really is the difference of an AEW product from a WWE product, from an NXT product, from a you know, name the promotion? They're all pretty much in that same vein. ECW, because of that, I think, still stands out as being so different that the fans remember it this this many years later, and it amazes all of us. Absolutely. And, uh, Shane, I want to thank you again for, for coming on the podcast today, and I'm really looking forward to having you at the Extreme Virtual Signing this Monday, along with Jerry Lynn, Two Cold Scorpio, Mikey Whipwreck, and Simon Diamond. I, I've been promoting shows since the mid-'90s, and believe it or not, I've never even met you before. Uh, and I've always been, right? a, yeah, never, never. We, I mean, we've never met. And I've always been such a big fan of your work, and I'm really Thank looking you. forward to having you. And uh, I, I just want to say, I hate to say, grossly underrated because obviously you're a big name in this business and had a fantastic career. But I just envisioned you and your character, like you were, you were so good that I think that you could have main event it against Stone Cold and The Rock and, and during that time frame, the Agit era. I, I feel like your character was so strong and you were so good on the mic and so good in the ring that you could you could have you could have been in there with those guys and, and I hate to say grossly underrated because obviously you're not, but I, I just envisioned you as that top tier WWF guy. I was that high on your work. I thought you were fantastic. Well, I appreciate you saying that and I'll say this in response. Uh I'm proud of the fact that I was able to forge a career in this industry and, and create the legacy that I hopefully have created. Uh, and not having been on a WrestleMania. Not that I wouldn't have liked to. I mean, I, when I went there in 95, that was what I envisioned. But I'm, I'm so strong in my belief of what I believe, a bit, what I enjoy of the business and what I like, what draws me to the table as a viewer. 
and I wanted to imbue some of that back to the fans. And I, I, I think that I would have done well with any of those guys. In the ring. I, you know, Steve and I had a great working relationship. It's interesting to note that when we went to uh, uh, Owen Hart's funeral uh, up in Calgary, uh, they had just bought the WCW. And Rock said to me that he came up to me and he said, how long before I have the chance to work with the franchise? Uh, because at that time, what we were being told, what we were hearing, the scuttlebutt was they wanted to play Ultimate War be wrestling Sting. Uh, I would be wrestling uh, uh, The Rock. They wanted to be similar characters from these promotions to, to, to Clash, you know, like a Super Bowl of wrestling. And I think had they done that, it would have, you know, done gangbusters. But instead, it, you know, they went a different direction. Uh, I, I'm so blessed to have had the career that I've had and so appreciative of the fans that that anybody even still remembers this not and this kid from New Brighton, Pennsylvania is amazing to me. It astounds me to this day. Uh, and I've loved the journey. Everybody, even the bad stuff. It, like I said earlier about the doing the jobs in WWF, uh, you know, you learn from all of it. And uh, in writing, writing my book that has been in the process for years, and I, I started and stop it. The reason I keep stopping is you have a tendency to gravitate towards those negative things when you're writing, at least I do. And I don't want the book to uh, come across as negative to the industry because I want it to to instill the same type of awe and wonderment at the business that I still have about it today. So uh, it's been a fun run. Look forward to Monday. Yeah, thank you, Shane. Anyone out there that wants to get a personalized autographed picture of the franchise, Shane Douglas, you can head over to 80swrestlingcon.com now. You can pick out the photo that you'd like, and Shane will sign it live for you this Monday night on our Facebook page between 7 and 10 p.m. We're going to have an extreme roundtable discussion. They're all going to be there hanging out, signing pictures. We'll give, they'll give you a shout-out afterwards. Shane, thank you so much again for coming on the show. We look forward to seeing you on Monday. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. Look forward to meeting you, Jeff. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. And a fantastic interview, Jay, with the franchise, Shane Douglas. I, man, I was always such a big fan of, of his. Uh, I, uh, and I said, I have to tell him that I thought that he was you know, grossly underrated. I, I think that he should have had a big WWF run, especially in that time frame in the 90, 98, 99. I mean, by 99, when the, the company was red hot WWF, he would, have, he would have been fantastic there, I thought. He would have fit perfectly in with that attitude era, uh, era uh, wrestling and just the feel. When the WWF had that attitude era, it felt a little more real. It felt a little more cutting edge, and the franchise would have been just a wrestler that could have slipped into that environment and just fit right in with those guys. And at the size that Shane Douglas was, he would have been a great opponent for some of the wrestlers that were in the prime spot in the world wrestling federation at that time. Yeah. You kind of feel like maybe Vince McMahon missed the boat a little bit on when he had Shane Douglas in his company, but either way, Shane Douglas had a heck of a career. He won numerous championships He's remembered by fans. And what I love is when you have a guy like Shane Douglas, whose career is as long as it's been, he still has a passion for the business. You can tell about the way he talks about oh, yeah. the world of wrestling. He's still a fan at heart. And I love hearing that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I, I was just thinking too, while, while we were on the, on the phone with him, like he, he would be a great producer for, for WWF, WWE, I'm sorry, WWE. Like he just has so much knowledge. He has so much passion for the business. And and it's funny, you, you see, how he, obviously, I, he knows who I am because I've been promoting a long time. You see how surprised he sounded when I said we never met before? 
Yeah, he said, really? We've, we've never crossed paths, yeah. but... Yeah, because uh, uh, I mean, were... I, I, I didn't want to say, but I mean, back then, I was very tight with Dennis Corluzzo, who, who, who ran the NWA, and I promoted shows with him when, you know, I was younger, and, and he helped break me into the business. At that point is when he threw down that EC, uh, the NWA title yes. and declared it the ECW title. I was, I was, I was with Dennis at that time. We were running shows, and, and uh, I was still young at that time. And uh, I just remember it was like the end of the world for, for Dennis and the NWA when he did that. And uh, I never had the opportunity. I never really promoted anything ECW related uh, back then because I was always, you know, around Dennis or associated with Dennis. Uh, so I, I've always wanted to. I was always a fan of ECW, man. I, I always I always loved the product. I always loved the performers. Uh, so it's funny that in 2021, I'm going to promote my first ECW style event. Um, yeah, I mean, I was always a big fan of Shane's and looking back at it now as, as, as obviously I, I know way more about the business now than I did back in 1994 when he threw down that title. It was, the, it was much larger of a picture than them screwing Dennis. Cause there was some, uh, back then there was a little bit of heat between Dennis and the, and Todd Gordon. Uh, they, you know, Todd was in Pennsylvania, Dennis was in South Jersey and they, they promoted shows and they butt heads a lot. Uh, and back then when they threw down the NWA title and declared it the ECW world title, you know, Dennis, you know, took that as a direct, you know, uh, uh, attack to him. But looking at it now in 2021, it was a much larger uh, picture than that because they're trying to make this uh, this ECW thing take off. And, and, and Dennis was just, you know, he was the, the figurehead president of the NWA at that point. So it could have been anyone else. And I think that the, the outcome still would have been the same. You know, they, they obviously disrespected the NWA and double crossed it, uh, but that helped launch ECW. So I, I think that if it was someone else other than Dennis in that chair, I think the same result would have happened. But uh, I, I just, I just, yeah, I never, I never even met Shane. I never met a lot of those ECW guys just because all those years I promoted, I really never did anything with ECW guys. I, I, I've had Mikey on one of my shows back in, I believe it was 1999 at a, at a high school gym. I had him on a show. Uh, Simon, I, I've known him a long time, uh, Lance Simon. So I've, I've had him before. Too Cold, I, I've had uh, several times before. Uh, I used to use him a lot when I was running shows in 98 and 99. And uh, Jerry Lynn, I actually had once before on a, on a show as well. But I, I never met Shane before. So I'm looking forward to, to having him there this Monday. Again, it's going to be an extreme virtual signing. It's going to be Monday, April 19th, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. And you can uh, order autograph pictures of all those guests and then watch it live on our Facebook page. Our Facebook page is linked at our website, 80swrestlingcon.com. You can tune in live, watch them all sign your autographs and give you a shout out and then we'll ship them out to you after the event. An extreme virtual signing, Tommy. I'm excited for money to, Monday to tune in and to see these guys at the extreme roundtable, not just for the autographs, but you got to imagine there's going to be some cool stories going around that table just to get that collection of guys together in the same room for that long period of time. I cannot wait to hear the kind of things that they talk about and reminisce and the stories they're able to share with the fans. Yeah, man. And and then next week's show is going to be a big one, Jay. A real, real big one. Batting down the hatches, 80s wrestling, the podcast listeners, because we're going to have an official preview 
of season three's Dark Side of the Ring. We're going to have both producers on the show next Thursday here on 80s Wrestling, the podcast. Tommy, this one is a huge show for us. Dark Side of the Ring is that documentary series about the world of wrestling that is absolutely on fire right now. And they're just about to launch, like you said, season three. And so I cannot wait to get these two gentlemen on our show, pick their brain, talk about the process, and just get a sneak peek at what we're in store for with, with season three. But I've seen them all so far. And this is, not only do I love it because it's about the world of wrestling, but these documentaries are so well done and so well shot and do such a good job telling stories. My wife, who is not a wrestling fan, will sit on the couch and watch these episodes with me because they're just so interesting and so well done. Yeah, they really are, man. I'm, I'm really looking forward to having those guys on next week and pick their brain and, and preview season three with them. Uh, before we end the episode, Jay, I, I've gotten, I, I gotten so much feedback over the last week of my Iron Sheik impersonation. I mean, literally, people are coming in the store now and they're saying, man, I love your Iron Sheik. And uh, I'm getting a bunch of uh, messages on Facebook and, and uh, Instagram. They're requesting several requests that if they can have, if we can have a short segment every week, uh, like a ask, ask an Iron Sheik a question on 80s Wrestling, the podcast, and, and make it a, a minute uh, segment every week on the show. So I thought it'd be fun to close the show if we do it. Maybe we call it Ask Tommy Sheik. So uh, maybe we could close the episode every week and Ask Tommy Sheik question on 80s Wrestling, the podcast. So you want to start that today to end the show? Let's do that. I mean, do you, this is going to be something that listeners are going to submit questions, right? Through social media and we get to ask them. Yeah. But I mean, we don't have it, we don't have it done yet. So you can, you can ask today's question, but yeah, if you want Tommy Sheik to answer a question for you uh, on 80s wrestling, the podcast, you can shoot us a DM on Facebook or on Twitter or face or uh, Instagram. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, answer. Uh, we'll try and answer your questions, but yeah. We're going to have a Ask Tommy Sheik. <laughs> I can't believe I'm even saying this. Ask Tommy Sheik segment here on 80s Wrestling the Podcast. So we'll let you start off for this week's uh, debut episode. Just for clarification, do these questions have to be about the world of professional wrestling, or do they can be just general questions about pop culture, about life? What is Tommy Sheik willing to answer questions about? It's up to you, man. It's your question. Anything you want. Anything I want. All right. Well, I'm going to ask. Uh, we just had WrestleMania. Uh, it was a two-day event. A lot of big matches, so some, some surprising outcomes, some predictable outcomes. But I'd love to hear Tommy Sheik's take on Roman Reigns retaining his title at WrestleMania 37. First of all, I'd like to say hello to all the wrestling fans all around the world, Baba. And I come here to end this wrestling, the podcast, Baba. And I saw the WrestleMania. I saw number 37, Baba. I was number one WrestleMania. I was number two WrestleMania. I was number three WrestleMania. Don't fucking tell me about the WrestleMania. I know WrestleMania. I saw WrestleMania, Baba. I saw the Roman Reigns. I saw the edge. I saw the wrestler Daniel Bryan. And the Roman one, Baba. 
the sicker son. I remember the sicker. I remember the man. And now remember number one. That's it. No more fucking question, motherfucker. I'm done. Goodbye. <laughs> and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Tommy Sheik with his take on WrestleMania 37. And until next week's episode of 80s Wrestling, the podcast, hope everyone has a great weekend. We'll catch you here next Thursday with Dark Side of the Ring and this Monday night, the Extreme Virtual Signing. Head over to 80swrestlingcon.com now.